Well, good morning, Emmaus. Can I get a go Chiefs? Go Chiefs. Chiefs. We're going to be really reverent this morning, but we're going to start appropriately with a go Chiefs. How do we feel? Okay, okay, go Chiefs, okay, go Chiefs. Well, if if it's not clear already, it's time. If you want uh, to send the kids to children's ministry, I get to teach K through 2nd. Uh, often, and I got to be honest, I'm, I'm jealous for the people that get to teach in there today. Love being with you, but uh, love being with your kids and getting to teach them, and uh, now's the time for them to go if you'd like them to do that. Uh, my name is Charles, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here, and before we get into our text this morning, I want to make three quick announcements, and the first is this. Right after the service, we are hosting Emmaus and 10. So if you've been visiting the church or want to know more about what it would look like to get involved at Emmaus, you can do that. Just meet us in the lobby, uh, and you can find us out there. There's goodies for you, there's information for you, and fellowship, so do that, and we do it all in 10 minutes. The second thing is Care Portal. Raise your hand if you know what Care Portal is. Uh, Julianne, where are you? Okay, Julianne's right here. So everybody look at Julianne here. So Julianne is helping us lead a ministry called Care Portal, which is increasingly a big part of our ministry. And coming up on March 10th, you're going to have the opportunity to be trained in how to respond to some of the needs that come through Care Portal. Care Portal is a way for our church to love people in our region uh, with practical resources. Single moms, people that need groceries. Sometimes the thing standing between a family staying together is just a crib. And so those needs come to us. And as a church, we get to meet those needs. And so, man, we want to invite you, especially if you're a small group leader on March 10th, to come and join us at the Strivings House. You can either email careportal at EmmausKC.com or look for a registration link in our newsletter. Is that good, Julianne? Okay. All right. Actually, there were just two. If you have your Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn to the third chapter of Habakkuk. You can go ahead and tell your neighbor that they don't have to pretend like they know where the book of Habakkuk is. They can just go right to the, the, the table of contents. This is a no-shame zone. But in all seriousness, that was a joke, by the way. I'm going to be making some some jokes today and just tell you on the front end. In all seriousness, you've probably learned where the book of Habakkuk is over the past couple weeks because we've been looking through this. In God's kindness, he's allowed us to listen in to his conversation with Habakkuk, a man whose name is hard to pronounce, but as we've seen, whose heart is easy to understand. As we've observed over the past few weeks, Habakkuk lives in a sinful and broken world. And like all of us at one time or another, he wonders where God is. Why he allows evil to prosper and how he will judge and restore all that is broken. Let me say that again. Habakkuk wonders where God is why he allows evil to prosper, and how he will judge and restore all that is broken. And today, as we look at chapter 3, towards the end of the book, we'll experience a different Habakkuk. We'll observe a man who no longer wonders where God is, but has seen his glory, embraced his wisdom, and learned to rest in the shadow of his might and mercy. Join me in Habakkuk 3. Verse 2, you'll notice in verse 1 that this is actually a song. I'm not going to pronounce or attempt to pronounce what looks like sheath. Uh, so I guess I just did. But, but I do want you to note 
that this starts with this conversation with God and then it, it climaxes and erupts into a song, which is funny because in the previous verses, God has just told him to be silent and yet, like my children, he immediately starts singing. And so we see here in verse 2, Habakkuk say the following. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan and affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows they sped. At the flashing of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. Underline this, verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my bone trembles. That should be the effect of this passage we're reading this morning. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Let's pray. Father, what a mysterious and strange word before us this morning, a glorious word. Father, we pray this morning that this would be a holy moment in our life as we talk about sin and salvation, as we talk about judgment and justice, as we think about all it means to be your people. We tremble, Father. We pray that you would help us look to Jesus. We pray that you would help us evaluate our life and our calling. And above all, Father, we pray that you would speak, O Lord, and we pray that you would give us the grace to Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We don't use the word hallowed much anymore. 
fact, I thought this morning we may say the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, say it with me, hallowed be his name. What does that word mean? Well, this weekend I looked at Webster's Dictionary, and hallowed means to, to be made reverent or to be holy, to be sacred, to be set apart or revered. And maybe you have had in your life a moment where you felt reverence or something was hallowed. I had a moment like this after 9-11 where I had the opportunity to go to ground zero. And as you would expect, as you walked around ground zero, one of the things you observed is it was a hallowed environment. No one was on their phones. No one was cracking jokes. Honestly, as you looked around, you saw people just staring into the distance, some people sobbing, some people crying, but there was silence. I experienced something like that at Gettysburg, and this is not as fresh, but I can remember driving around Gettysburg with my windows down and thinking about the fact that thousands of young men had died in these fields. You could hear, if you listened, the sound of their prayers, their cries, their confusion as they met their maker. And as I prepared for this sermon this weekend, if I'm honest, this was one of the most difficult passages I've ever worked through. And it wasn't because it was difficult exegetically, though it is. It was difficult because I wrestled with a sense of a hallowedness in this text. That in this text, we are confronted with a man who has met a holy God and seen him like Isaiah, and it has changed him. And in that space, no longer is he negotiating with God and relativizing his sin. He's saying, come Lord, what may. It's an amazing passage. Chapter 3 of Habakkuk captures the words of a man who met God and lived to tell about it. Chapter 3 captures the song of a prophet who can't keep silent about God's providential power and protection. Chapter 3 shares the heart of a man who has been brought low by the weight of his sin. And chapter 3 captures the surrender of a sinner's prayers and pride in exchange for the glory and rest of our holy God. Turn with me in chapter 1 of Habakkuk. Chapter 1 of Habakkuk. To understand chapter 3, we have to go back and understand chapter 1. We have to understand where Habakkuk came from. Habakkuk, overwhelmed by the crookedness of God's people, in verse 1 he cries, How long, O Lord, shall I cry for help? How long will I cry and you not hear me, or cry to you violence and you will not save? How long will the law be paralyzed, justice be ignored, and truth be perverted? In other words, Habakkuk asks, God, where are you? Have you asked this before? God, where are you? I, I find myself increasingly in 2024, if I'm totally honest with you, saying, God, where are you? I watch cable TV and some of the commercials that assault my living room, I wonder, God, where are you? Frankly, I look in the church just like you do, and sometimes I wonder, God, where are you? Why has your law been paralyzed? Why are your people atrophied? And if we're real honest, we look within ourselves 
And we can't help but to admit that we often don't live up to God's call on our lives and we cry out through the power of the Spirit. God help us. And so this is Habakkuk's prayer. This is how we open the book. And in verse 5, to our astonishment, God responds. Look with me in verse 5. God says, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Now, in essence, you don't need to know who the Chaldeans are, but in essence, God is saying, not only am I aware of the wickedness around you, Habakkuk, I am raising up a bitter and hasty people to judge you. And as we've seen over the past several weeks, the Chaldeans were powerful and godless people. Listen in verse 6 to how God describes them. He says, they are a bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. I remember growing up having a friend whose house was robbed, and it was so disturbing to them that they moved. There was a sense of indignation that someone would come into their house, this safe space, the arrogance of that, and take what is theirs. And this, in this poetic language that God has inspired through Habakkuk, we should feel this. They're a bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They're dreadful and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence and their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings, they scoff. And at rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go, guilty men whose own might is their God. God inspired this poetic description because he wants you to feel what Habakkuk fears. Namely, the terror and coming judgment of God. But he also wants to warn you this morning. For some in Judah, I'm sure it felt like all was well. People continued to get married, children were born, crops were planted, and markets were full. Perhaps they wondered God hadn't noticed their sin or was going to sweep it under some cosmic rug, but just over the horizon. A people was growing in number and strength. The bitter and hasty nation was sharpening their swords, stringing their bows, and readying their horses preparing to deliver God's justice. This passage serves as a sobering reminder that God will not be mocked. It's so easy to quietly silence our conscience and convince ourselves that we can hide our sin from God. We tell ourselves we can manage our sin. We tell ourselves our sin doesn't hurt anyone or quench the Holy Spirit, we convince ourselves that God doesn't care or God doesn't see or God's not going 
to act. We say in the quietness of our spirit, maybe beneath the line of our conscience, that I'm, I'm pulling it off. Nothing in my life is coming off the rails. And if God cared about me or my sin, he would do something about it. But as Habakkuk learned, God was not only intimately aware of Judah's sin, he was raising up a nation at that very moment to judge them. This should be a sobering warning to us. God is too holy and God is too loving to allow you to persist in your sin. And as Habakkuk learned, we must not, listen to this, we must not misinterpret God's patience and grace as God's approval. Let me say that again. We must not misinterpret God's patience and grace as God's approval. As you might imagine, Habakkuk responds to God's plans of invading Judah with the Chaldeans with terror, confusion, and most of all, what I want you to see is pride. Habakkuk responds to God's plans with terror, confusion, and pride. Look at verse 13. Speaking to God, Habakkuk says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? You who are pure or have pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors, he's talking about the uh, people of Judah, and remain silent when the wicked, the Chaldeans, swallow up the man. Now listen to this and underscore it. The man more righteous than he. It's as if Habakkuk says, you're going to use those guys? We don't spank our kids a ton anymore just because they're, they're older, but growing up, we, uh, we believed in capital punishment, appropriate capital punishment. They're in here. They can, uh, you can check on them if you're worried about them. Um, but invariably, when there was a situation where there were two children involved, you had a situation like this. And, you know, you have guilty party A and guilty party B, and when you start talking about guilty party B, immediately, but they is what happens, right? If you have kids, you know exactly what's happening here. And Habakkuk, instead of dealing with his own sins, is going, you're going to use those guys? They're twisted and wicked, and you are holy and cannot look at wrong. And now that I think about it, God, compared to those guys, we're not that bad. If anyone demands punishment, it's those guys. And I want us to notice here this morning, one of the side effects of our sinful condition is self-righteousness. We are incredibly gifted at minimizing our sin and maximizing their sin. And this is especially true when you live amongst a generation that openly denies and rebels against the things of God. When I watch Shark Tank and I watch the commercials that are in between the sessions, I can very easily and subtly tell myself I'm not as bad as those guys. Thank God I don't spend my money the way they spend my money. Hopefully they don't spend my money, spend their money. If they're spending my money, let me know. We can trick ourselves into thinking God prefers the stench of our sin over the stench of their sin. Ironically, 
It's Habakkuk who is mistaken about God's character and holiness. Central to God's godness is his holiness. Just open your Bible anywhere throughout Scripture and you were within a paragraph or a page about commentary on the holiness of God. This is who God is. Throughout the Old Testament, we see countless references and reinforcements of God's sacred holiness. This is the entire basis of God's law and economy of salvation. God's holiness struck such a fear and reverence in God's people that priests would only venture into the deepest parts of the temple with a rope tied to their body. Why? Because they were so afraid that there may be one drop of sin that has not been atoned for, that God will strike them dead. This is the reverence the people of God have for the person and holiness of God. And yet even Habakkuk has drifted into believing that his sin was somehow less offensive to God. But friends, Scripture makes it abundantly clear that every sin, even those we have convinced ourselves are small and acceptable, are an eternal offense to our God and enough to condemn us to hell. If God in all His glory were to appear in this room right now, we would not negotiate with God. We would not relativize our sin you would seek to crawl under your chair. And it's because you would sense, as Isaiah did, that he is holy, holy, holy. And your response would be worship, yes, but your response would also be, Lord, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. You notice, if you go back and look at that passage, Isaiah 6, it's not like Habakkuk that says, I live amongst the people with unclean lips. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. Habakkuk has forgotten the full extent of his sin and has grown proud and impatient. And if that wasn't enough, look at how he concludes this passage. It's as if he folds his arms and says, I'm going to stand here and wait and see how you respond to me. You ever done that? in moments of doubt or despair or maybe pain and suffering, if you're honest, uh, you say, God, I'm going to stand here and wait and see how you deal with this. And this is where Habakkuk is. Turn with me to chapter 2. And if you're wondering if God immediately strikes Habakkuk dead, he doesn't. No, God patiently but firmly responds, underscoring his commitment to his plan and revealing his perfect knowledge of the Chaldeans. Chapter 2, verse 2, he says, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits his appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. And listen to these beautiful words, comforting words to us. And if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God says, write it down. Make it plain. My judgment and my restoration is coming and as sure as I am myself. And if it seems slow, wait for it. It will 
surely come. As I was studying this passage this week, I just found this, even the promise and the surety of God's judgment to be comforting. Just this week, I was walking with my wife, and we, we commented to one another that the older we get, the more we long for heaven. And I think that's a really natural thing. But the older we get, the more we find ourselves saying, how long, O oh Lord? Come, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. We, we look at uh, children, we look at families, we look at sin and brokenness and all the things that ravage our world, and we find ourselves saying, come, Lord Jesus. And in this space, God says, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. We see in this passage that God knows exactly who the Chaldeans are. And this is where a, a lump in the throat of Habakkuk starts to develop. It gets really, um, really hot in the room. It's, it's like me back to the discipline, the kids at the end of the bed. What happens is when you start talking to child A and, and you go, you did this and you did this, child B is going, oh, I did those things too. I did that, oh, I did that too. And this is kind of what's happening in this passage, I think, with Habakkuk as he hears God outline the sins of the Chaldeans. Unlike God's people who were called to live by faith, the Chaldeans, God says, are proud and wicked people. Look in verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4. He says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects them at his own people. And to further illustrate his intimate awareness of their sin, God describes in sobering detail the sins of the Chaldeans. Look in verse 6. There are five woes we've talked about in the previous weeks. Five woes. But he notices, notice in verse 5 or 6 that they are oppressive lenders. God cares about how we steward our money. In verse 9, he says they hoard their wealth. In verse 12, he says they build cities for their own glory. And in verse 15, they're drunkards and pornographers. But all this comes to a crescendo in verse 19. As we see, the most offensive thing to God is that the Chaldeans worship false gods and idols of their own making. Look with me in verse 18 and 19. God says, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? God is mocking idols here. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, where its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. And here in chapter 2, verse 20, I believe is the central verse in this entire book. And I think it's the verse that changed Habakkuk's life. I think it's the fulcrum point from chapter 1 and 2, that's right, to chapter 3. How do we understand chapter 3? 
I think it's this verse. In contrast with the godless and sinful actions of Israel and the Chaldeans, God thunders, the Lord, who Habakkuk knows sees all, rules all, and will in time judge all, is in his holy temple. And to put an exclamation mark on it, he says, let all the earth be silent. I think this is hallowed ground for Habakkuk. Habakkuk has spent the past two chapters lamenting the sins of his people, condemning the wickedness of the Chaldeans, and questioning the wisdom and ways of God. And it's as if God allowed Habakkuk to question and criticize an armchair quarterback and eventually said, enough! Silence. Habakkuk, have you forgotten who I am? Have you forgotten my holiness, my character and power? Have you forgotten the covenant I made with my people, how I rescued your forefathers out of Egypt with my mighty right hand? Have you forgotten that this was all of grace, or have you convinced yourself that you and your countrymen are somehow holier or more deserving of my love than the Chaldeans? Have you forgotten the vision and words of Isaiah? who saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood seraphim, each having six wings. Two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet. That's how holy God is. And with two they were flying, and they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. All the earth is full of his glory, like the water covers the seas. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, dwelling among a people of unclean lips. Why? Like Habakkuk, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Amen? I think the image and reminder that the Lord was in his holy temple had a similar effect on Habakkuk. Like Isaiah, his eyes had finally seen the king. They were like smelling salts. He saw God high and exalted, holy and full of eternal weight and glory, and it simultaneously brought Habakkuk low and lifted him high. Though he initially wondered if God saw or cared He's been reminded that God sees and one day will judge all sin. Though he initially doubted God's timing, he has learned that even when he cannot see God's hand, he is at work, amen? Though he was tempted to relativize Israel's sin, he's been reminded that one drop of sin, one drop of sin is enough to condemn all of humanity to darkness and despair and eternal punishment away from the presence of God. God has humbled Habakkuk. The vision of God sitting in his holy temple has consumed him, and in that space, all he could do is cry out for God to come and restore all that is broken, even if it cost him 
everything, even if it's at the hands of the Chaldeans. This is the moment when we're brought low in our lives and we finally step towards repentance. There are moments in our lives where we step up to a fork in a road and in one path is our sin and another path is our Savior. And these are holy and hallowed and sacred moments. And this is precisely what is happening with Habakkuk. And he stopped debating He stopped relativizing. He stopped quibbling over his sin and making excuses and saying they're more righteous or they're more righteous or we're more holy. And he's saying, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And this brings us to chapter 3. And here Habakkuk says, Oh Lord, I've heard the report of you. and your work, O Lord, do I fear. For the first two chapters, he's going, where are you? Where is your works? Are you not engaged? And now he's saying, oh, Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work, oh, Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. But, Father, in your wrath, would you remember mercy? Have you ever prayed that prayer? Have you ever been in a room with someone that's um, struggling and processing sin and patterns of sin? Have you ever driven down the road and been scared to pray that prayer, God, come what may make me clean? That is a terrifying prayer. That is a hallowed prayer. That is a holy prayer. And that's why it's sacred in a way to peer into this and what's happening with Habakkuk. There was a time in junior high and in high school where I struggled with a pattern of sin. I knew it was wrong and occasionally I would fight against it. But for the most part, I let it rain in my life. And I had convinced myself I could dabble in this particular sin. I would silence my conscience and I learned to stuff my shame and guilt beneath the surface. I would tell myself I wasn't hurting anyone and like Habakkuk, I would tell myself the lie that my sin really wasn't that bad and it wasn't certainly as bad as those other people. But I was being hollowed out from the inside. The pull of my sin and the tug of my conscience were ripping me in two. I eventually did something that tipped my father off of what was going on in my life. For days, we both would pass each other in the house and pretend like everything was normal, but we knew it wasn't. And then a week or two later, I heard my father coming through the back door and slowly making his way up the stairs and towards my room. He was coming to confront me. I heard the door open, and before my dad could sit down on my bed, without a single word being spoken, I began to weep uncontrollably. I began to weep in a way that I'd never weeped before that point, and I haven't since. And my dad began to weep. Not a word. And like Habakkuk, my emotions in that moment were driven 
by the fear of my father's judgment, but even more, even more, the unspeakable joy of knowing my dad loved me enough to rescue me from myself. And this is why the book of Habakkuk feels like hallowed ground. We're confronted with God's holiness, power, and above all, his patient and tender love for his people. In this book, we observe the miracle of faith, learning with Habakkuk that even when we don't see or feel it, even when God's providence feels confusing or appears to be delayed, we can trust that our Father is on His throne, working all things, Paul says, together for the good of those who love Him. And in this book, we have the privilege of being challenged by Habakkuk's decision to go all in on God, even if it cost him everything. And so God's invitation to us in this passage is clear. We're called to live lives of faith, beholding his glory, embracing his wisdom, and resting in the shadow of his might and of his mercy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so deeply from our souls this morning. Father, of your grace and of your mercy. Father, we thank you that like Habakkuk, we can look back to your acts of old. We can look back to times where we have been confused and your mercy and your justice has seemed delayed and yet know time and time and time again you come to us with grace and tenderness and mercy. And so, Father, we pray this morning as we consider Habakkuk, as we consider all you've done in and through his life, and we consider all that is ours in Christ, you would help us as we come to those points in the road where we're torn between our sin and our Savior, and we would choose you by the power of the Holy Spirit every time. And Father, when we stumble, we pray that we will remember grace. In Jesus' name, amen. In just a moment, we will celebrate communion. A reminder that God answered Habakkuk's prayer and remembered mercy. Yes, God sent the Chaldeans, but 600 years later, he sent his son, the Christ who as verse 13 foreshadowed, went out for salvation of his people and crushed the head of the house of the wicked. As we take this bread and as we drink this juice, we remember that God is a God who keeps his promises. God is a God who judges sin and brings salvation through the life, death, and resurrection of his only begotten son, who is himself mercy. One of my favorite songs puts it this way. The death for which all sin demands, the sinless died for guilty man. And though we give our hearts to less, he is our righteousness. If that is your story and that is your song, we invite you to take communion. 
If that is not your story, we invite you to stay in your seat and consider Jesus. This is just bread for you. All our pastors would love to talk to you and would love to plead with you to consider Jesus. Church, come and eat.